All right, our passage for this morning, as we're continuing in the book of Acts, uh, is from Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. You can, or sorry, Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 16. Uh, it's in the bulletin. You have Bible apps or Bibles where you can find the passage as well. So let's listen to God's word together. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us have been, has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that had, was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning. Um, this morning, we are, uh, we've arrived, as Paul's just read, in Acts 13. Um, and we're going to continue uh, tracing the mighty works of God uh, in the birth and the spread of Christianity in the first century. Um, and this was obviously a long chapter with a lot in it. Uh, but I'm going to stick to uh, this section dealing with Paul's uh, sermon here. And it's his first recorded sermon in Scripture, um, which Paul, uh, Pastor Paul just read. Um, and this event is in, uh, incredibly significant in the history of the church because it marks uh, the official um, it marks the official beginning of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Um, up to this point, we've seen a number of high-profile uh, Gentile conversions with the Ethiopian eunuch and with Cornelius the centurion, and even earlier in this very chapter, uh, where Paul has the chance to present the gospel to a Roman proconsul who seems to respond favorably to it. But um, it's this event that seems to start this sweeping movement um, of non-Jews coming to faith at an incredible rate, even greater than the Jewish converts in Jerusalem at Passover. I mean, in this chapter, we're going to see how the entire city comes to hear uh, the gospel preached. Um, and so in this passage, we get a clear look at how God is sovereignly guiding his plan for his church forward. And the Jews and the religious authorities are being faced with a choice here. They can submit to God and to his plan, locating themselves within his story, or they can double down on their own plan and be left behind. And we're going to consider uh, how Paul, um, how Paul's challenge, rather, to the religious establishment of his day is a challenge that we need to consider as the church and as people in our time and place as well. Um, and I hope to do that by looking at his sermon and um, seeing how he calls or exhorts his hearers to know the true story of the world. And secondly, that he calls his hearers to embrace and inhabit that true story. And then thirdly, he, he gives a warning about the cost of rejecting that story. So we start at the beginning. Um, just some background to this passage because we weren't able to read the whole thing. The, Paul, the, the passage opens with Paul and Barnabas arriving in Antioch, which may be slightly confusing because at, at earlier in this chapter, they start in Antioch, but that was Syrian Antioch, and now they're in Pisidian Antioch. Um, and in fact, at this moment in history, in that area in the world, there are at least 16 known cities by the name of Antioch. Um, and that was because uh, when the Greek Empire was divided after the death of Alexander the Great, the leader of the Seleucids named a bunch of cities after his grandfather, Antiochus. And so this particular Antioch is located in the province, the Roman province of Galatia. Um, which is interesting because when Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, um, it's likely that the believers here that he's speaking to now would have been among those he's addressing. Um, this is a Roman colony made up uh, primarily of likely Roman soldiers, but it also clearly has a healthy Jewish community uh, seen by the fact that they're freely gathering in a synagogue and worshiping. 
And this seems to be Paul's um, MO in his missionary journeys moving forward. This is, um, he seems to strategically target um, these Roman colonies with his missional efforts, um, possibly trying to replicate the initial efforts in Jerusalem. He preaches the gospel to the Jewish communities, and when he inevitably meets with opposition, it attracts the attraction of, or it attracts the attention of everyone around, and they come to hear the gospel message. And then those who uh, accept the gospel are then driven out by the violent opposition into the surrounding villages and countryside, taking the gospel along with them. And so it's amazing to see the way God has been orchestrating this spread of the gospel throughout the known world as this pattern is repeated over and over again. And so that just uh, serves to, um, this passage essentially serves as our window into Paul's typical method. And so Paul and Barnabas have arrived in Antioch, and this is the first Sabbath that they're there. They go to the synagogue in the city to hear the word of the Lord. Um, and the Jewish people at that time likely followed a lectionary of readings, and so they read, we see that they read from the law, a selection from the law, and then a selection from the prophets. And then it would be customary to have a rabbi stand up and give um, an address or expound the texts. And it also wasn't uncommon at the time for traveling rabbis visiting synagogues to be asked to give the address. And that's what's happened here. The leaders of this particular synagogue um, have identified Paul as a uh, visiting rabbi and have asked him to deliver an address. And so our text that Pastor Paul read picks up where Paul has now stood up in the synagogue and he begins to preach the sermon. And in so verse 16, where we began, Paul starts with a historical um, retrospective of the people of Israel, beginning with the calling of their fathers, right, in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the specific choosing and calling out of a people. Um, it spans to the exodus in Egypt and through 40 years in the wilderness and through the reception of the promised land and the raising up of judges and then finally the establishment of their monarchy. And if we pay close attention to Paul's language in these verses in 16 to 22, Paul's focus remains fully on God's sovereign provision of all these things. God chose the patriarchs. He made them a great nation. He led them out of slavery. He put up with them in the desert. He gave them a land and judges and a king. He raised up David. Um, it's all in the past tense, and it's all to point to how God has been working out his plan since the beginning of history. And at this point, they would have been in total agreement with him. But then in verse 23, he drops a bombshell. Because he says, of this man's offspring, referring to David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. You have to understand how jarring this would have been for a first century Jewish audience. They've been waiting, I mean, since the promise was originally made to David just a thousand years previous, they've been waiting for this messianic offspring of David to reclaim the throne in Jerusalem and to restore God's people to their former glory. And they were certain it was going to happen roughly 500 years previous when the remnant returns from exile and rebuilds the walls in Jerusalem and the temple there. But still nothing happened. 
And so they've been waiting ever since. They've been stuck in this holding pattern, uh, simply trying to maintain. And particularly for Jewish communities like this one, who've been driven far away from Jerusalem, and they're under the boot heel of the Roman Empire, the fulfillment of these promises must have felt further from reach than ever before. But that is because they had lost sight of the story that they were in. And because of this, they missed the, long, the coming of the long-awaited Messiah entirely. Verse 27, Paul says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Paul points out that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, though they had been raised hearing these prophets read every single Sabbath, had totally missed what those scriptures had been pointing to all along. The scripture had been clear about what was going to happen. I mean, if you read the, the, there's a portion of Isaiah called the suffering servant portion, and particularly Isaiah 53, the very famous passage, right? It says that he had no form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should des desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Psalm 118 says that the stone the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. He had to be rejected first. The message had always been that the Messiah would be the rejected one before he would be exalted. Verse 32 says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Only once the Messiah had been rejected and killed could, he, could God raise him up and exalt him. And Paul appeals to scripture here, not to human understanding or to rabbinic tradition. He points their attention back to God's word so that they can know what God's plan was. And he applies, um, he applies three texts there, three Old Testament texts traditionally thought of as referring to David, and he clearly applies them to Jesus. Right? The, the passage from Psalm 2, Jesus is certainly the son of God. In Psalm 16, it talks about how you would not allow your Holy One to see decay, right? But David had been dead for over a thousand years, and certainly the only thing left of his body at that point was dirt, right? But Jesus had been raised from the dead. Jesus was the Holy One who had not been allowed to see corruption or decay. And so Jesus had been God's plan A all along. But the religious establishment of the day had adopted a narrative of their own invention, one that focused primarily on them and their own restoration as an ethnic people. And they wanted to stick with their program. And I think, if we are honest, this is easier to do than we like to admit. And there's a quote in your bulletin beneath the text um, from David Garland that I think is really applicable. And you can turn to it and read it with me if you want. It's a lengthy quote. But Garland says this, he says, Christians are often in danger of a myopic focus on their own current issues and problems and never think about their place in God's meta-history, which arches beyond them. 
God is not the God simply of ancient history. God is the God of the living and continues to do mighty deeds. But God is also the God of the future. Failing to know and understand what God has done in history as revealed in scripture can blind one from seeing what God is doing now and what God might do in the future that defies our expectations. We all have the tendency to settle into our own idea of what the church is or what it should be or where it's heading or what worship should look like or what a respectable Christian ought to look and act like. We're not that different from the community that Paul is addressing. We so easily get distracted from the mission of God, from the fact that God is doing something so much bigger than us by the details of our tiny moment in history. And the truth is we are far more affected by the cultural water that we swim in than we realize. And I didn't get this quote in time to go in the bulletin. But this is one from Michael Goheen. That's really good. Um, the church is a community that inhabits both stories, narrated and socialized into the cultural story from birth, and then re-narrated and re-socialized with the biblical story through the hard work of discipleship and formation. So it is precisely within the very life of the church and in the heart of every believer that gospel and culture meet. A painful tension in the es is the essence of the church's life in the midst of culture. It is the inevitable outcome of living in two communities that embody two incompatible stories. The Christian life is one of learning to recognize and replace all the bits and fragments of the cultural human story that we have been born into and brought up in. We replace it with God's story through the, over time through discipleship and formation is what Michael Goheen says. And those of you who were around during our Ephesians series through the fall, um, you might remember the language of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And that's what this is talking to. And, this, and that brings us to our next point because once you know what story you're in, it demands a response from you. And so Paul calls his audience to embrace and inhabit the true story. In our text, sorry, turn to verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul points out that the first step to embracing and having ceremony so desperately that they had missed the Savior that it was all meant to point to in the first place. So Paul calls them to turn from their futile self-salvation project and put their faith in Christ who is fully able to make atonement for them once and for all. So the story was never meant to be about God choosing a people and then teaching them how to work hard enough to earn his favor. It was always meant to be about Jesus. Striving to follow laws or the law will always only result in a deeper awareness of how far you fall short of God's standard of holiness. 
That is its primary function. And it's a very good thing if we understand that. But the law is a very cruel master if we confuse it with the means by which we get right with God. And so Paul tells us that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the law's requirements on his people's behalf. They are set free. And we too are freed from all of the functional saviors that we instinctively cling to. We are prone to the same sort of self-salvation striving mentality that Paul's original audience was. The specific vehicles we use to get there might be different. And so we really need to think about this. As a church, what are we tempted to find our own identity in? What do we make too much of? Denominational or theological distinctives can quickly become identities, right? Specific worship styles can take this place. Flagship ministries or programs, membership numbers or growth projections. Our plans for our church can all too easily become the very thing that blinds us from God's plan, his revealed plan for his church. And so we need to be ruthless about identifying these things and repenting of them. We need to constantly turn from the false narratives that we are drawn to like moth. Moth to flame, I guess. We need to always seek to reorient ourselves to Jesus and his, ministry, and his mission to bring his ministry of reconciliation to the whole world through his church. In order to do this, we need to do a couple of things. First, we need to stay rooted in the word. If we are not being shaped and formed by God's word, then we are simply allowing culture to do it. God's word is living and active, and it speaks to us, but do we listen? In verse 47, Paul quotes Isaiah 49, and he says, for, the, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul points out that God's plan for his people was clearly revealed in his word. It was always about God choosing some to be a conduit of grace and blessing to all. And all the way back in Genesis 12, when God first called Abraham to be the father of his chosen people, he said this to him. This is Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the story that Paul's original audience has been called to inhabit, and it is the same story that the church today has been brought into. This is our purpose for existing. This is the true story. So we've seen in the word, God has clearly revealed the major contours of his plan, and this has explicitly told us where it's headed. But the specific details of what faithful participation in that plan looks like in our context, we need to be discerned as we go. And so the second thing we need to do is we need to be constantly praying for the Spirit's guidance. 
We cannot afford to rely on our own understanding. It leads nowhere good. And one of the practical implications of this is that as we make plans for this ministry, for, for this church and for the ministries of this church, we need to do so with an open hand. Right? We need to always be willing to reevaluate, always willing to pivot, always willing to abandon an idea or um, an, an, an initiative if it's not working out or it's not bearing fruit. And it's pretty easy to walk away from a ministry if it's not bearing fruit because none of us like to feel like we're wasting our time. But what if... What works or bears fruit in one season is not what God is calling us or wants to use us for in the next. Are we open to that idea? Are we even asking those questions? Only when we do those things do we discover the role that we've been given to play in his story. And so Paul concludes his sermon with a warning. This third point, which is the cost of rejecting the true story. Immediately following his call to repentance, Paul issues um, this solemn warning in verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. God is sovereignly carrying out his plans and purposes in the world, whether we acknowledge and participate in them or not. His story is the true story, whether we think it's the story we are in or not. The only difference is when you reject the true story, the only difference when you reject the true story is that you wind up playing a very different role than the one you thought you were playing. And the results are catastrophic. Verse 44, this is not, this didn't make it to, didn't fit in the bulletin, so I'll just read. Initially, everyone was very thrilled about what Paul had been preaching. And so they asked him to come back and preach again the next Sabbath. And so this is the next Sabbath. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Luke tells us that the rulers of the synagogue, along with a number of the members of the local Jewish community, became jealous when Paul began inviting outsiders into the story that they thought was just about them. The week before, they liked it. They liked what Paul was saying, as long as they, as long as they thought it was exclusive to them. But Paul says they thrust it aside, and in so doing, they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. You know, it's easy to look at this from a distance and to think, how could they be so foolish? Right? In the first century, Jewish elites often get dismissed as religious zealots who only cared about checking boxes. But these were devout men and women who cared deeply about preserving their religious tradition. 
They genuinely thought they were doing God's work by maintaining the purity of their community. Their devotion and their piety was simply misdirected because they lost sight of the big picture and the part that they were supposed to be playing. And that is a warning to us too. If we are not careful, this can easily happen to us as well. We can come to adopt an identity for ourselves as a church that becomes more important to us than what God is calling us to. It happens all the time. I read an article a while back that coined a phrase that really stuck with me talking about this. He was talking about the Puritan paralysis, where you start out with something very well-intentioned. You start out um, properly oriented, but over time, that focus, it becomes too important to you. It becomes an idol. And this is so often far more subtle than we realize. It's so it's also far more deadly than we realize. And it's perfectly illustrated in Revelation 2, right? In Jesus' letter to the church at, at uh, Ephesus, which Paul preached on not that long ago, right? Jesus commends this church for preserving and protecting the biblical message that they had been entrusted with, for not allowing it to be hijacked or watered down by false teaching. But he warns them that what had started out properly motivated by love Right? properly motivated by the need to keep the message in order to share it with others, it became their identity over time, and they had atrophied. And Jesus warned them, saying, if they weren't going to let their light shine, they were in danger of having it snuffed out altogether. So this warning is for us as well. Right? We have been called to something that is so much greater than just us and just this moment in history. But we need to be rooted in the word. We need to be ceaseless in our prayers for guidance. We need to allow ourselves to be shaped and formed by God's revealed story and plan for us. Constantly reoriented to it. Finding our role in it. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you have been carrying out your plans and your purposes for the redemption of the world, for the reconciling of your creation to yourself since long before we were ever here. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed your plan and your purposes in your word. Lord, help us to find our place in them. Help us to become sensitive to the remnants of these alternative stories that we still inhabit. Empower us by your spirit to discern and to fulfill the role that you have called each of us to play in your story. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.